race is not the first thing when you're speaking about colonialism. Prohibition of language, what we had in the 19th century, closing of the Ukrainian theaters, university schools, libraries, and prohibition of speaking your language everywhere, that is what we are talking about. Acquisition, or even I would say looting of your history, because Russia is speaking about being the third Rome, Christianity, and everything, but it is Moscow, the third Rome, but not Kiev, for example. Coming to you from the banks of the River Danube, you're listening to the Vienna Coffee House Conversations podcast with me, Ivan Vejvoda. I'm a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences here in Vienna, where I lead the Europe's Futures program. So welcome to our digital salon. In each of the Vienna Coffee House Conversations episodes, I'll be joined by Europe's Futures Fellows and leading thinkers from around the world. We'll be probing their current research through discussion, challenge, and exploration. Listen along as we explore the ideas, debates, and encounters that will shape the future of Europe and beyond. Today, we open this autumn season introducing the sixth generation of Europe's Futures Fellows at the Institute for Human Sciences, a project that is uh, generously funded by the Erste Stiftung. I have the distinct pleasure and honor of hosting Hannah Schelest, a Europe's Futures Fellow this year. Hannah Schelest comes to us from Ukraine, Odessa. She is a renowned expert on security and foreign affairs. She is the Security Studies Program Director at the Foreign Policy Council, Ukrainian Prism, and the Editor-in-Chief at Ukraine Analytica. She is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, SIPA, in Washington. Previously, she served as a senior researcher at the National Institute for Strategic Studies under the President of Ukraine, Odessa branch, for more than 10 years. In 2014, she was a visiting research fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome, and she was an advisor of the working group preparing the Ukrainian Naval Strategy 2035 and was involved in working groups developing foreign policy strategy of Ukraine and the Asian strategy for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and many more things. So, Hannah, a warm welcome to you. Hello, and thank you for the invitation. Let's start by uh, a question. We are 18 months into the Russian invasion and aggression of Ukraine. Ukraine is in an existential battle for its freedom and its survival as an independent European sovereign country. It has the support of many countries in Europe, the United States, and is in a prolonged struggle, which at the moment we don't see the end of. Could you tell us where we are at this moment in time? And may I just add that you came to us to Vienna directly from Odessa two weeks ago. Thank you for this question. You know, that is uh, really quite a problematic to say where we are now, because we're in the middle of the war. And as you know perfectly, when you're in the middle of the war, the situation can change very quickly. But there are certain tendencies that we definitely can project, probably, or emphasize. First of all is that, unfortunately, we are not in that uh, short war, as many, not only in the Russian Federation, but in Europe and among our partners, hoped. We are, unfortunately, 
currently in the full-fledged war, uh, and it is no war for attrition because the heavy fightings are happening daily and the whole country is under attack. But at the same time, we are definitely in the absolutely different situation in terms of international support, but we still need to fight and to advocate for this support, not only when we speak about the global south or so-called global south, but even when we speak about our partners, because here we can see uh, one day an extreme support, political support, diplomatic support, and the next day quite a difficult statements, or I would say even compromised statements from our partners that don't believe either in Ukrainian win or in their ability to stay with us as long as it takes. So we often hear the cliche that Ukraine must not lose this war and Russia must not win it. How would you explain that in terms of possible outcomes? This phrase is very dangerous, and unfortunately, we hear it quite often. That's why we are trying to change the formulation that Ukraine needs to win this war, not as long as it takes, but as quick as it necessary. The reason is that this fear of Russia that is defeated is correlated with those fears that we had in the end of 80s, beginning of the 90s, because of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And a lot of those who are projecting their current fears, they're still thinking about Russia as the Soviet Union. And definitely they are thinking that Russia that uh, that is losing is very unpredictable, that maybe it can use the nuclear weapon. And the last but not the least, it is the, I even don't know how it's probable to say it in the proper way, but they, they don't believe that Russia can lose in general, because Russia for so many decades been building the image of the mighty country. So that's why now for them it is just very difficult to imagine that Russia can uh, lose. And the worst scenarios that we usually receive, it is uh, correlation with or comparing with Germany after the First World War. And the saying that probably Russia will be with that revenge moods and we will come to the Second World War. Even that we are trying from our side to explain that Russia of 18, that is Russia of 1991, And we are now exactly in that second world uh, war situation. So that's why we also need to fight till the victory, because we are in not in the conflict where you cannot decide who is right, who is wrong, but you are in the absolutely open act of aggression and the genocide. So you are either fight or you're losing. It cannot be a win-win situation. Indeed, this Russian invasion in February of last year, 2022, was an earth-shattering historical moment. Nobody expected a nuclear power that is Russia to invade a sovereign European country on its borders. The whole European architecture of security collapsed. Nobody really expected this to happen And yet we have the greatest land war since 1989. Of course, there was a war in my country, Yugoslavia, but that was an implosion of a country in in violence and, and war within it. And we saw several things that were maybe a surprise to many, but not to all, that the unity that Europe and the West showed in terms of solidarity with Ukraine was something to be noticed and continues. The question is, do 
people who are in solidarity with Ukraine, both governments and uh, nations and peoples, understand that, in fact, you are waging a war for the freedom of Europe? Some of them definitely, yes, because here we need probably to divide those groups of supporters to the several groups. First, that is the group of those who immediately understood that that is the war of black and white. And because that is the war of black and white, that was very easy for them to accept the side of the good and to act respectively. For many of these countries, that was from the very beginning, or that is both countries and uh, personalities in different countries, understandable that the Russian slogan that they are fighting because of the NATO enlargement is absolute nonsense, that it was just a good curtain for the bad play. That's why uh, they clearly made their choice, and we saw it within all these months of support towards Ukraine. Many of them are emphasizing that now Ukraine is fighting for those values, principles of what is really Europe. But there are another group that still have certain doubts about the beginning of the war. They have sometimes even the Stockholm syndrome against the Russians. And some of them are supporting Ukraine, not because they believe that it is the European war, but from the very pragmatic position, because they understand that if to stop Russia at the territory of Ukraine, it means that the war is not coming to them. So that is cheaper. That is like Ukraine as a buffer zone, something about like what we heard for decades, but now it is in the military sense. But there are still a huge group of uh, people, even in the partner countries, who are saying that that is just Russian-Ukrainian war. That is their problem. That is the problems of the post-Soviet space. That is the problem of the spheres of interest. And we need to do as much as possible not to be involved in this war. And they don't understand that when they introduce sanctions, when they are providing weapons, and when Russia names them as the party to the war, it means they are already involved there. But that is still these artificial attempts to, to divide, to cut themselves from what is happening. They forgot what it means to fight for the democracy, for human rights. They are taking everything as granted. And because they're taking it as granted, they don't understand that sometimes we need to protect these human rights with arms. And that was a wonderful phrase of the last year Nobel Peace Laureate, my friend Alexandra. She's been joking that she never thought that as the human rights defender, she will be asking weapons for Ukraine at each public speaking she's having. And how she tried to explain it to her counterparts that... If you really believe in human rights and in defending of the human rights, you need to understand that one day you may be in the conditions when you need to take arms to protect uh, those basics, universal human rights. And when you talk to interlocutors from the West, do you have a feeling that they understand the reality of a very negative development that if Russia were to, and hopefully it will not, conquer Ukraine, that the Russian army, which is one of the biggest armies in the world, would be on the borders of the European Union and NATO from the Baltic Sea down to the Mediterranean Sea. You know, unfortunately, it seems to me that they still don't understand that it is already reality even sometimes, because even before uh, February 2022, we had a lot of Russian provocations at the borders of the European countries. We had uh, our provocations near Spanish uh, coast. We had provocations near British coast. We had it near Sweden and Norway regularly, provocations near Alaska. So Russians been trying all the time to to show their power or to it's not projection of power but really to provoke to see how it's going on 
And for most of the politicians, like for military, everything is understandable. They're preparing now to these scenarios. They've been building, they've been learning our experience. But for politicians, you can follow it in their strategic documents and their statements. Each time that is the phrase is, no, 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 that is the accident. It was no Russian intention. And even now, the last two weeks, Russian drones, Iranian-made, are falling at the territory of Romania. What were the first statements of the Romanian MFA? No, no, nothing happened. Then we show the pictures that it is the fire, it's happened. Yeah, but that was the accident. Russians didn't uh, try to do it. Come on, that is 300 meters from the port that they attacked. Russians knew exactly, and that's why they used drones but not missiles, because they knew that it would be provocation against the Romanian ports. So in an earlier conversation that we had, you talked about uh, meeting people, experts and, and colleagues from what we call, for better or for worse, the global south. And uh, their uh, understanding about what's going on, and we know the reluctance of some of them to openly criticize. Uh, there, there have been a varied number of positions on condemning the aggression at the United Nations. Um, uh, many countries did vote on that. But give me a bit of the sense of how you respond to these uh, to their questions or remarks that this is not a colonial war, which it is because the Russian state, the Russian Federation, is claiming that Ukraine is theirs, that you are not really a nation, and that, in fact, this was always Russian. That is really quite a difficult to work with the so-called global south, but we also understand that it is not something united. Yeah, you luckily have Japan or Guatemala, two very different countries, but both supporting Ukraine very strongly. In general, we need to understand, first of all, that the good news, 140 countries are voting in support of Ukraine within the United okay. Nations General Assembly. Only five and among these five, Russia and Belarus, so only three de facto, that uh, voted against the resolution. So that is good news. What to do with those 50 that cannot decide what they're doing or why they're not supporting Ukraine? Yeah. First of all, for many of them, we need to understand that their own past and their own politics really influence the situation. The anti-imperialistic, anti-American, anti-Western sentiments influence their position. And very often that is more important for them than the real attitude towards what is happening in Ukraine. We are still seen as part of Europe, so it means that we are something allied to them. Then you had the phrases from some African countries, but you are white, you cannot be a colony. And, and that's something that really shocked me when I heard it for the first time, because in the imagination, in the knowledge of these countries, colony is only something what Europeans did to other countries around the globe. And they don't accept Russia as the empire. They forgot that Russian Federation was an empire, first of all. Now, in the 18th, 19th century, Soviet Union is a classical empire, but Soviet Union managed to bring this idea that they are anti-imperialistic and Russia is still building on the same image. Unfortunately, this narrative is so strong inside of the people's minds. So only now when we started bringing journalists from African and Asian Latin American countries, when we started speaking more with them, when we are trying to organize the advocacy visits to some of these countries, we're explaining them the very basic facts that race is not the first thing when you're speaking about colonialism, that prohibition of language, 
what we had in the 19th century. Closing of the Ukrainian theaters, university schools, libraries, and prohibition of speaking your language everywhere. That is what we are talking about. Acquisition, or even I would say looting of your history, because Russia is speaking about being the third Rome, Christianity, and everything, but it is Moscow, the third Rome, but not Kiev, for example. And you mentioned that, of course, in the occupied territories by Russia, they were really trying to obliterate your books, your culture, your teaching tools and everything. We experienced this for centuries, and now we just started to like revive, renew. Occupation came, and exactly when you follow the Russian actions, the first thing they're doing at the occupied territories, they are burning books from the libraries. They are taking off Ukrainian books and Ukrainian history books, first of all, from the schools, and they are bringing their own teachers of history and textbooks. One of the first actions, campaigns that they are doing at the occupied territories, it is so-called Yun Army, Youth Army of Russia or something like this, the organization that they have. They are bringing convoys of books of Russian literature to the occupied territories. So that is becoming like a trademark for most of the territories that are under the occupation. They are cutting you from the information, so you cannot have Ukrainian mobile phones, Ukrainian television, Ukrainian radio. And for speaking Ukrainian language, you can be prosecuted at these territories. Uh, You are always named as suspicious if you're speaking Ukrainian language or if you have tattoo. Do you know what Russians been doing? Because in the beginning of the war, that was still possible to evacuate yourself from the occupied. There were all these columns of people, corridors, and they were so-called filtration uh, stops. And at these filtration stops, they were making all men to undress to show their tattoo. The same was happening with girls. And if you had tattoo of Trident, the Ukrainian symbol, you immediately were not allowed to leave and you were arrested. And there were plenty of cases of that. So people were checking what they have. And and that was fashionable to have such tattoo as a Trident, for example. So you understand how other to name it if not the like colonization when you're bringing all yours and you're deleting or it's not even deleting it's like cleaning to to disappear everything Obliterating, that is yeah. connected with Ukraine but that is also a genocidal attempt because if you are trying to uh, kidnap kids you have 30,000 of the Ukrainian kids that have been deported from the occupied territory to Russia where they have changed names, changed birth certificates. So for their families, it's been very difficult to identify them. Immediate adoption for the very simple procedures. I mean, you, you can name it in the different ways, but in the international law, it's called genocide. Yeah, absolutely. Let me go to the whole issue of of Ukraine desiring to join the European Union and NATO, which it was not at the moment of the invasion and aggression in 2014, first of all, and, and later. The European Union will hopefully give, after giving candidacy last June to Ukraine and Moldova, will give now a date for the beginning of accession talks. From all opinion polls, it is understood that the Ukrainian people massively want to join the European Union. Of course, we must remind ourselves of the Orange Revolution back in 2004, and then, of course, Euromaidan in 2014, which were, if anybody was doubting, the clearest signs about Ukrainians' European perspective and and path. How are these things seen now, today, 
The war is ongoing, a brutal war that is waged by Russia on your country. But at the same time, Ukraine is preparing to fulfill the conditions that the European Union has put in front of it. You're absolutely right that support during the war has grown significantly. So if we go for this nine years approximate numbers, that in 2013, when the Euromaidan started, we had approximately 5% supporting European integration and only 13-1-3 supporting NATO integration in Ukraine. Just by February, we already had these numbers with approximately 74% supporting European integration and 65% supporting NATO. But the last 18 months demonstrated that we now have more than 85% supporting both European and NATO integration uh, of the country. And there are several reasons for this. First of all, I would say very banal thing, but it is seen by population as the civilizational choice with whom we would like to be. That is like final cherry to the cocktail, like that it's not only we made this choice, but you accepted that we are part of the European family where we belonged and Ukrainian history demonstrated that we belonged before Russians came. So that's why with the principles, with the fight, with everything, we want to be there. The second reason is because Ukrainians believe that their government, their politicians behave good only when they are obliged by the certain requirements of the European Union. So when European Union put the anti-corruption reform as the necessity for the visa-free regime, you immediately saw the decisions being made in the parliament and implemented because that is very tangible things. You understand what does mean visa-free regime with the Schengen zone. Then you have something like, again, economic support in exchange of the certain things. And that is the very, very good note that helps the politicians in Ukraine to be well organized. And for Ukrainian population, we are pragmatic. We just want these norms to be implemented in our country. And definitely... The years of the war demonstrated what is the difference, that if before 2013 a strong propaganda that European economic union can be better for us than European Union, I, it, it doesn't work anymore. First of all, because you see what does mean current Moscow and what does mean so-called Brussels, yep, collective Brussels. But then you also see the economic benefits. How many Ukrainian companies came to the European market? What are the increase in the trade uh, with European Union uh, for these years when we started to have the free trade agreement? With NATO, the situation is a little bit different because for decades it's been very, very strong anti-NATO propaganda. So with war... It came, first of all, the public campaign of different NGOs, think tanks, universities. We're doing a lot of the explanatory work. We are trying to explain to state servants, to media, to others, what does it mean NATO? That NATO is not only the collective defense. It is much more what needed with our security services. And that NATO became also political that it's also about good governance, about anti-corruption, about uh, all these political requirements and democracy. But then the last one and a half year, where you have yet 20% increase, that is definitely, we're using now NATO standards, NATO uh, military equipment, and uh, our people uh, just understand that what is real might uh, what type of ammunition we would like to have, what standards we would like our armed forces and security services to have. We would like to be with those who are best and who are strong. But we also understand that we can contribute to the NATO uh, experience with our field experience, with the real war Absolutely. experience. And that is the very interesting couple that can be. That's definitely 
will benefit to the European security. So at that time of, of the Maidan, and not to go into all, all the details, eventually Ukraine did sign the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement, which opened the door to the, to the European market. And as you said, benefited very much also Ukrainian economy, trade and, and businesses. Now, in the run-up to this December meeting of the European Union Council, the foremost body of, of the European Union, which will decide about uh, going forward for Ukraine, there were seven conditions that were put forward. Do you see these conditions being filled by then? Uh, we just saw news the other day that this uh, minority rights issue will probably be voted in. So another one of these conditions. Tell us a bit about the process of, of European integration from the internal administrative and political side. That is definitely, we received these seven conditions, uh, and uh, uh, that would be really important to demonstrate the progress. And let's be honest that we've been given one and a half year. Not very long, but at the same time, after one year, that was only four implemented, de facto. And then you need some time to prove that you not just adopted the legislation, but you're really adhered to what you adopted. And two issues being probably, or uh, three, the most problematic for us. One, as you said, the ethnic minority, because the Euro, Ukraine is absolutely in line with all the European conventions on the minority rights. So uh, none of our legislations are violating. And I would say that some of the European Union member states had stricter and more it's not problematic, but let's say more questionable legislation about the minority rights than Ukraine. But they don't have uh, such complicated uh, neighborhood relations with some countries. And they don't have country like Hungary that manipulates with the issue of ethnic minorities. That's why our government uh, understood that we need to search additional support. We need to search additional, at least consultations with these countries. And let's hope that we would have a certain move. The second thing is anti-corruption. And here the question was that Ukraine already adopted, again, like we adopted all the legislation. But because of martial law, first of all, we limited. And because of these limitations and restrictions to transparency, to accountability, because of secrecy of how it was called, that allowed a lot of the politicians to use it in the wrong way. So the question was to reopen what we already adopted. And theoretically, that can be done quickly. You just need a political will. So it's not the elaboration of the difficult stuff. And the last but not the least is definitely judicial sphere. Judicial sphere was always our weakest point. In yeah. every country, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, here even there were a lot of estimations regarding the anti-corruption uh, reform that we have a very good prevention mechanism. We have very good uh, investigation mechanisms, but most of the cases fall at the level of bringing them to court and what's been done there. That's why uh, European Union clearly understood that despite the whole complexity, but they, they should prioritize this issue each time. And uh, here, as for now, I don't see the same level of actions as we see with other steps regarding the necessary like reforms before the decision should be made. And here, let's see, will it be Ukrainian government who managed to persuade European Union to be softer or European Union will be stronger and would just follow this line regarding the judicial reform as much as possible? So let me ask you, as a citizen of Ukraine, do you think that enough has been done on implementing the anti-corruption, again, in this situation of, of war, we saw that there was a, a change at the Ministry of Defense. 
We saw that the recruitment officers in the various oblasts of Ukraine were also changed. So clearly, even from the outside, we can see that things are done. But again, as a citizen, do you think it is sufficient or do you think more could be done? In terms of anti-corruption, always more can be done. Absolutely. Yeah. But here I don't like when some politicians are using this corruption topic as the excuse for not providing Ukraine with the aid, for example, or something, and emphasizing that Ukraine is so corrupted. And then sometimes these politicians are from the countries where corruption is at the same level. The question, or even higher, the question is that their judicial system sometimes working better. But it doesn't mean that these countries are without any type of the corruption at the top level. What I hope in Ukraine now that uh, with the legislation adopted within the last two weeks, we are returning back to the pre-war situation because one of the strongest parts that Ukraine had and what uh, almost none of the European countries, European Union member states uh, have That is the registry of the electronic declarations. So all our state servants, or better say, all those who receive money from the state budget, because that is also about soldiers, for example, and others, they annually needed to fill a declaration about their income, about their property. And in case during the year something significant is changed, for example, you sold your car or you bought a new car or very expensive watch, you need within two weeks to report it. And all this information was available online. So not only for the anti-corruption bureau, but I could check. And sometimes there were very funny situations when girls in the bar were discussing like, oh, he told me about this story, but I checked him. He has a wife and he doesn't have that Mercedes. So, I mean, that is the anecdotes, but they were based on the trust to these systems. When the war started, they closed immediately this registry because they said there are too much confidential information that Russians can take. But also, like, if they would just close these registries, we could understand. But they also allow state servants and especially MPs not to report. And for two years, de facto, because usually you send it in March, they were not reporting. And uh, investigative journalists found a lot of cases of what the factor was bought by the uh, different MPs, expensive cars or something like this. Now the civil society pushed the parliament to adopt again that legislation to, uh, first of all, to make them feel these declarations. They wanted still to hide the declarations, but president vetoed this. So now we hope that the legislation will be adopted. That's a question of a week or two. So again, this registry will be opened. Only soldiers, like military and security service, they will be able, like, their declarations will not be public. So that's understandable not to know whom you have in the armed forces. So let let me take you to the demographic issue. I mean, Ukraine is one of the biggest countries in Europe. It was nominally 40-something million, 41, 42, 43 With the war, there was an exodus, understandably, of families with children leaving anywhere between two, three million, three and a half million people left. Tell me a bit about the going and coming back. How is that seen and evolving in this 18th month of the war? You know, originally, uh, the worst numbers that we had, according to the United Nations, there's been around 8 million people who left the country in the, begin- in the first months of the war. But then a lot of people returned back. 
because especially in the cities like Chernovtsi, Lviv, Odessa, people realize that you can live like you don't need to be a refugee somewhere. But then definitely you have for approximately 4 million people of the internally displaced people. So it is also a huge problem of the changing demography of the cities uh, and the regions within the country. Now, by the different data, we have approximately 4 million people living abroad. And uh, we are speaking 90% about uh, women and kids. So that makes additional difficulties because when these kids are going to our schools, that's much more difficult than to return them back. But if it is divided families, you understand all the scope of the social problems that are coming because men are not allowed to leave the country. It's only women or elderly who are living. We see now a certain process of returning back. It was the huge return back around August, September last year. Then when Russians uh, uh, significantly damaged our energy system, a lot of women moved again because that was very difficult for kids to be 12 hours without electricity because that is your heating, that is your education, that is everything. But now when everything being restored, we again see people are starting to return back because for many Ukrainians, that is definitely like home is home. And if you're not from the city where, like Kharkiv or Kivorok, where you have a daily shooting, or so they think that probably that is better to be at home. Still, there are a lot of people who found very good jobs and who are now, for example, in Poland, we had data that Poland are now trying to create conditions for Ukrainian refugees to stay because the taxes that Ukrainian refugees paid were bigger than the amount of humanitarian aid for the refugees that the Polish government spent. And for some countries like Germany, like Poland, Ukrainian refugees and Ukrainian business that had been relocated really created a very, very important impetus for economy. And they're now thinking how to create conditions for these people to stand. So Ukraine will need to develop a coherent state policy. What to do with these refugees? Can we create conditions for them to return back? If they stay yet one year, will they return back or not? And unfortunately, that is a question that just now started to circulate in the political discourse. So we know that there are a lot of efforts and plans for the reconstruction of Ukraine. And by that, I mean not only physical, but social, economic and every other sense of the word, is there a governmentally sponsored group or team or committee or many committees working on these various issues, including the psychological ones, obviously, of the trauma that the war has created? I cannot say that we have a single body and probably we will not be able to have, but we can speak about the several uh, uh, directions. First, about the physical reconstruction. Uh, a few months ago, the Agency for Reconstruction been created. They will be in charge of the big infrastructural projects, everything connected with the critical infrastructure, first of all. They are already working. Uh, a very reliable man is in charge. They are trying to make their work as transparent and as accountable as possible. They even started the online resource where you can come and to see each project that are financed by the government through them. 
and the progress, where they are now, whom they paid and how it is. That's also done for donors. So they trust where they invest these monies. So that is the physical reconstruction. Then you have a lot of work done at the local and regional levels, because definitely the state agency cannot reconstruct all buildings or everything that is uh, destroyed by Russians. So this work will be happening. Then you have the Ministry of Reintegration, but this ministry for nine years been mostly in charge of Donetsk, Lugansk regions and Crimea. And now it is a little bit of the question, are they in charge of the newly occupied territories? Can it be the same policies or not? But there are certain issues, at least in terms of documents, recognition or schools or something like all these issues that they are trying to, to deal with. But they are dealing mostly from the policy point of view and from policy of view of legal issues and a little bit of social issues for these people. But when you speak about psychology, it's only now, it seems to me, that at the big forums like Annual Ukraine Recovery, it's now called uh, Conference, we started to raise what to do when you have 40 million people with the post-traumatic syndrome. And that is the huge question to which we still don't have answer. And I'm not sure that any country in the world ever had answer after the war. For veterans, at least we have Ministry of Veterans, and they are trying to respond to this question. But what to do with civilians, this question will be raising and raising again. As we draw this conversation to a close, let me bring you back to, to your hometown. Uh, last year's generation, the fifth of Europe's Futures Fellows, visited Moldova and Ukraine, and we came to your home city. That's where we met you in Odessa in, in April. We spent a very rich uh, two days experiencing the issues of the curfew, of, of the defense, of the situation that looked normal in the streets and restaurants of the town. But on that second night, as you reminded me, there was a, a bombing that, that occurred. How is daily life in Odessa? How is uh, your family and friends? What, what is the approach that people take apart from, of course, trying to live as normal a life as possible? Yeah, you're right, because from the shock of the first week, we tried to adjust. Like, that's normal for the psychology of people. We are trying to live the normal lives, not to see what are the threats, except when you hear the air raid, and that is something that is impossible to hide. But in general, I would say that the market been working, like, after the first week, because people used to live, that was normal where they were going. Yep, that is our Mediterranean society's market is important as the third place de facto. Then you definitely used to the curfews. If a year ago they've been starting from 8 p.m., now it is from midnight, so you already can organize your life more or less. Then I still can say that Wi-Fi in Odessa is better than in Vienna. And our, as my British friend is joking, then well, he's a military journalist, he said, I can't understand why my mobile internet in the trenches at the very front line with soldiers who's working better in Ukraine than in the middle of uh, London. And each time he's very frustrated with uh, uh, this. But that is a reality. Better Wi-Fi, coffee existed. Cafe and salons were the first one to open. And they worked even when we had uh, problems with energy and electricity. They, the small business were the most uh, agile. They immediately bought the generators and everything to work, to, 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 to show this normality. But then uh, at the same time, I mean... On the one hand, you try to live your life. You go to the theater even. You go to friends. But then you're very afraid when you have a thunderstorm. 
And that is something very unconscious in the charts, like city charts that we have, because usually in May, in uh, June, we have big thunderstorms. Mayor was posting like, don't be afraid. That is just a thunderstorm because you physically see people who are immediately turned their heads there. It's physically that you feel this fear after several very, very heavy bombings. And unfortunately, because of port, we have uh, each few weeks quite a significant bombing of the city. I, I can uh, sympathize with that very much because we experienced very similar things during a much shorter period of bombing of 78 days only. But exactly, we would jitter when the door closed too loudly. Hannah, thank you very much. And in full solidarity with you and the Ukrainian people, I thank you for this conversation and look forward to uh, staying in touch. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations, the podcast brought to you by the Europe's Futures Programme at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Europe's Futures is a programme of impact, ideas and action for a Europe that rises to the challenges of the 21st century and is undertaken in collaboration with the Erster Foundation. To find out more about our work and research, visit europesfutures.eu.